This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. After final exams this year, Colorado Springs high school teacher Brittany Darris passed something out to her 130 students. Not grades, but handwritten notes personalized to each of them. This grew out of an incident earlier in the school year when a parent delivered some unsettling news. She approached me and she said that her daughter had attempted to commit suicide and that was the reason for her extended absence. And because of that, she wanted to come in. She wanted to touch base with each of her teachers and just see what she could do to get caught up and how she can stay successful in school. She went into some detail saying that her her daughter had deleted all social media accounts. She had left notes to those closest to her, so she was ready to take her life. And the police actually stopped her in the act of committing suicide. What was your reaction to this news? It was devastating. It's never easy as a teacher to hear that one of your students is struggling. And mom and I were both in tears over this news. We, we just had a very, very difficult time trying to move past the emotional part of the situation and move into action. And so that's kind of where I came up with this idea that I could write a letter to her and just expressing to her that she matters and that we care and that she makes a difference in her classroom and that we we want her back and we welcome her back with open arms. Mom thought that was a great idea. She thought that anything to boost her daughter's self-esteem at that point, since her daughter was still in the hospital, would be beneficial to her. And so that's when I wrote the letter um, just saying that she's beautiful. She always walks in with such a bright smile and people love to be around her. The students get along with her. She works great in groups. She's very good about including people. And I just said, we miss you and we can't wait to have you back. And I guess then the idea came to you not just to write one letter, <laughs> but to write 130 of them. Yeah, it's it's one of those moments where I I felt blindsided. I had no idea that she was struggling. I had no idea that she felt upset or depressed in any way. And it made me realize out of 130 students, she's not one I would have ever thought would be depressed in any way, shape, or form. And so from there, I got the idea that I need to write to every single one of my students. So every single one of them knows that they're special and that they have a place in my classroom and they make a difference. I'm looking at a photo of one of the letters, actually a bunch of them laid out. Uh, Mm -hmm. You can see this at cprnews.org. One is to a student named Gracie. Gracie, I hope you know how special you are to me. You inspire me to be a better person every day. I still have an orange ribbon on my desk that you gave me, and daily I think of your courage and strength. How long did it take you to write these letters? I worked on them for a total of two months. So at one point I was sitting at an airport waiting to catch a plane, and for two hours waiting for the plane, I was sitting there writing card after card after card. Other times it was just staying after school when I was waiting for students to come in or the school day had already ended and I would write some then. I wrote several at home. So it was a process of over two months writing these cards. Were there students who didn't stand out enough for you to immediately know what to write? That's the amazing part. When I first decided to do this, I thought that maybe out of 130 cards, I might have a hard time because that's a lot to write. And I wanted to find something personal for every single student. But the amazing thing as I went through it is I would copy the name from my class roster over to the card and it just came naturally. 
even the students who might not be the best students or the smartest students or the most respectful students even. I know something about them that makes them special, makes them unique, and it's worth commenting on in those cards. Including the story of the socks. Will you tell me that story? The story of the socks. So I have a student who on the first week of school, we go around and we play a game where they have to tell two truths and a lie. And I have to guess what the lie is, which is really great to help me figure out who they are and what their interests are and a little bit about them. So one of my students said that he had three drawers full of socks and that he could wear a different pair of socks every day for the entire school year. And I told him that's got to be a lie. And he said, no, that's actually true. (laughs) And so the rest of the semester, I would point out, oh, I really like your socks. And so his card started out by saying that every time I walk into a store and I see socks, I think of him, which is true. So it's just another one of those situations where I saw the name, I wrote the name on the card, and that's the first thing I thought of. So that's the first thing that went in the card. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with high school teacher Brittany Darris. She teaches at Rampart High in Colorado Springs. And after one of her students tried to commit suicide, Darris wrote a letter to that student and then had the idea to write a personal note to all 130 of her students, uh, telling them what they mean to her. And, you know, this is a lovely gesture. There's no doubt, Brittany, but does it really make a difference? Um, Is there a risk of kind of overstating what this act means when there are potentially students facing really serious mental health issues? When I first started writing the cards, my purpose was even if one student goes home over the summer and they're having a hard time, whether it's with family life or struggling to adjust to going back to school next fall, I hope that in writing the cards that one student would remember that I wrote them a card and they want to come back to Rampart because they want to tell me about how their summer was. And so in reality, a card might not solve depression. It might not solve suicidal thoughts, but maybe in one moment for even just one student, when they're feeling down or they're feeling upset or they're feeling like they don't want life to go on, maybe they'll think back to that one card and they'll think, wow, you know what? She cares about me and I want to go back and I want to tell her how my summer was and what I did. Did any of the kids roll their eyes when you handed them a card? No. And I actually thought that some might, which surprised me, but I had... I think every single student, as I was looking in the room, had a smile on their face. I had one student jump out of her seat with her hand in the air with her card in her hand. And she said, this is the best thing I've ever gotten. I'm going to keep this forever. Another class jumped up and I was sitting at the front of the classroom and they all came up and gave me a huge group hug. Another class Every single one of them, as they walked out the door when the bell rang, every single one of them gave me a hug and said, thank you for the card and thank you for an amazing school year. I want to circle back to this student um, who really made you think this way. Um, Mm -hmm. She returned then before the end of school, right? She did. And how did that go? And what do you think this taught you about looking for potential signs or maybe it opened your eyes to what your school and other schools might need to support students with suicidal ideation. 
So again, that's another one of those situations where it's tricky because with her, even thinking back, I wouldn't have known that there were any signs at all. Hmm. Every single day she came in smiling. She came in happy. She sat by her friends. She had conversations. She was never left out of groups. And so I never would have suspected it with her, which again is why I think it's important for everybody to use kind words or words of encouragement to Anyone, anyone you come across, whether it's a smile on the street or somebody you work with and you're telling them, hey, I like that you do this. Or in my case with my students, just constantly reassuring them and pointing out the things that they do well instead of having to have them hear all the time what they need to do better or what they're not good enough at. Hmm. I want to note that in May, three students at Colorado Springs High Schools committed suicide. Uh, Mm -hmm. Maybe you saw that in the Gazette. So is this kind of thinking something you've shared with other teachers? I think that each teacher has a different way of addressing students and addressing their needs and getting to know them on a personal level. I think that's one of the great things about this post going viral is that now because of it, other teachers that I don't even know, teachers from different states, teachers from different countries, have been reaching out to me and saying that they're inspired now to either write letters to their students, letting them know why they're unique, or also to just use more positive reinforcement. It's not just uh, other teachers that have reached out, I understand, but parents too. Yeah, I've gotten a ton of emails from parents. I got one that was particularly touching. Her daughter had committed suicide, and she said that that's one of the hardest things that she's ever had to go through and she ever will have to go through to lose a daughter because a lot of parents don't expect that their children will pass before they do. And she said that, It meant so much to her to see my post because she recognizes that suicide and depression amongst teenagers and children is a problem. And she said, I hope that you made a difference for a student because in reality, it's too late for her daughter. And so she said, I can tell you from personal experience that those notes of encouragement, those make the difference. And, you know, you'll never know, right? I mean, you talked about someone just giving another person a smile on the sidewalk. You just never know what effect that will have. You never know. And that's, as a matter of fact, when I was in high school, I had a friend who we were close in elementary school and we had kind of grown distant in middle and high school because we went to different middle schools. And one day she was walking down the hall in my high school and I said, hey, how are you doing? And she said, I'm fine. How are you? And I said, good, thanks. And she told me probably a year and a half later that She was planning to go home and commit suicide that night. And she said the only reason she didn't is because she she knew that somebody had noticed that she existed. Oh, goodness. That must have been an awareness that you brought to this, huh? I think so. I think it's ongoing. It's one thing after another that has kind of impacted my life. I actually lost a student to suicide three years ago. And it's one of those things I will never, ever forget. Every single day I think about that student And it's not easy. So I think all of these factors have come together and inspired me to write these letters so that every student knows. Brittany, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Brittany Darris is a teacher at Rampart High School in Colorado Springs. And again, there are photographs of the letters she sent to students at CPRnews.org. If you know another teacher who has done something exceptional for students this past school year, we'd love to hear about that, too. Sing their praises by emailing us, news at CPR.org. Again, news at CPR.org. 
We're going to stick with the subject of suicide coming up and look at why it's a particular problem in ski towns. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Western ski towns have a higher suicide rate than other areas. It's hard to pinpoint why, but some experts believe ski town culture, high altitude, and economic inequality may all be factors. Denver journalist Kelly McMillan recently looked into this for National Geographic's Adventure blog. And welcome back to the program, Kelly. Hi, Ryan. In your story, you describe the suicide of a 57-year-old ski bum in Telluride. Mm -hmm. Will you recount his story briefly for us? Yeah, sure. Um, So Tom was, as you mentioned, a 57-year-old ski bum. He lived in Telluride since the 80s. He was college educated. He was very active, um, a big skier, hiker, and mountain biker. Uh, like many ski bums, he had worked, you know, odd jobs over the years, mostly in hotels. This is a Tom, uh, and you just use his first name in the piece, right? Yeah, and um, and in recent years, he'd he'd sl- he'd sunk into a depression. He'd lost two of his brothers in in the last ten years. His parents' health had started to decline, and subsequently, he became quite depressed and isolated. And um, in addition, his health also started to decline, and he wasn't able to do some of the things he liked to do. And so um, in early March, he walked up Tomboy Road. He found a beautiful perch overlooking the San Juan Mountains, and he shot himself. Why did you choose to focus on his story? I picked him because I felt that it was sort of emblematic of... um, suicides in ski towns in that he was middle-aged, he was male, he was white, he was facing these crises that I think many sort of older people living in ski bound, uh, in ski towns face. Um, you've been there for 20 or 30 years, You're it's hard to make ends meet, um, you might not be able to do all the things that once brought you to the mountains. Um, and so I thought he illustrated what's going on in these towns quite well. And, and you say going on in these towns. So this is something of a trend. It's not reserved to tell you right. Exactly, yes. Um, you find high suicide rates in Steamboat, in Aspen, um, in Gunnison County, further afield in Jackson Hole, in Salt Lake City. Um, so it is somewhat of a trend, yes. And is it a trend purely in Western ski areas or in Eastern ones as well? In other words, is this a Western phenomenon or a ski town phenomenon? So it's more of a Western phenomenon, to be honest. You know, you look at Stowe or Killington, Vermont, and their suicide rate is pretty much on par with Vermont's rate. You look at Chamonix, France, which is, you know, one of the most iconic ski towns in the world, and their um, rate is, in fact, lower than France's national rate. And of course, we know that in general, in the West, there is a higher suicide rate. Um, experts say that access to firearms and a higher level of isolation are among the factors contributing to the broader regional trends in the West. What do you think is different, though, about ski towns? So I think you have all of the factors that contribute to the West's um, high suicide rate and then some. Um, so I think in ski towns, you have this enormous wealth disparity. And a 2012 study showed that um wealth disparity can increase suicide risk, and the population most vulnerable to that is low-income individuals living amongst wealthy individuals. Then I think you have really serious rates of substance abuse. 
Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that Pitkin County, where Aspen is, and Route County, where Steamboat is, they also have some of the highest rates of substance abuse and suicide. Um, then in, in mountain towns, you also have um, the actual social makeup of these towns. So you have a lot of people moving in and out of them. They lack social cohesion. Um, you don't have a lot of people participating in some of these um, community organizations that knit communities together, things like church or volunteering or, you know, the Elks Club. Um, and then in addition, you have this interesting effect of altitude on serotonin. And serotonin is a neurotransmitter that's uh, linked to mood and uh, mood disorders. And so in, in, in altitude, serotonin production is diminished. Um, and then dopamine production, when dopamine is a neurotransmitter that's related to risk-taking behavior mm. and pleasure-seeking um, behavior, the production of dopamine is elevated. So that might explain why when you go to the mountains, life seems sort of sweeter. And But also for people with a mood disorder, that combination can be deadly. So you have high highs and low lows. And there is a good deal of research going into the effect of altitude on our psychology in general. And more information about that, actually, at CPRnews.org. It's really complex, isn't it? I mean, I, I'm, mm. I'm guessing that as you looked into this, you found there to be not no one factor. No, and I think that's the thing with suicide. You know, in general, it's not usually one thing that sort of tips a person over from life to death. It's this sort of lifetime of circumstances and events and traumas and th and things like that, that that make somebody do such a drastic thing. And possibly geography, as we're hearing from Denver journalist Kelly McMillan, who wrote about Ski Town Suicide for National Geographic's Adventure blog. It also strikes me, um, Kelly, that there's a certain pressure that comes with living in a really beautiful place, in a place that others see as a paradise, that that pressure might create a contrast in your life. Um, gosh, I'm not having enough fun. I'm not um, sort of celebrating this, this place and this life. And that that could send someone over the edge. Does that make sense? That's exactly right. And that's uh, another factor that many of the experts um, mentioned when I interviewed them. It's this idea that I'm living in paradise and I should be happy and I should have this, you know, idyllic lifestyle, but I'm not happy. And that can really amplify one's feelings of depression and isolation. To this um, income disparity aspect, has that worsened over time? So experts on the ground in these communities will say yes. Mm -hmm. And so while this suicide in mountain towns phenomenon isn't new, um, people suspect that it is more amplified now, that it's harder to make ends meet in these towns. I lived in Telluride in 1997, and it was no problem to find a room to rent for 300 bucks a month. I think you'd be really, really hard-pressed, if not impossible, to find something close to that now. Meanwhile, you're surrounded by the trimmings of wealth kind of reminding you of your own plight. Exactly. So it's that and the financial stresses of living in these towns. You know, a lot of times after one season ends, you have to figure out how you're going to support yourself during the off season. Um, you might have to find a new job or a new place to live. Meanwhile, there's less support um, to ride these waves. You know, you're far away from your family. Your friends that you made over the, over the season might have left. Um so it's sort of this perfect cocktail of 
of ingredients. You know, it used to be that a lot of East Coast and Midwest college kids would head to ski areas and become ski bums. Now there are a lot of foreign guest workers doing what used to be ski bum jobs at the resorts. Any sense that this suicide trend is affecting them as well? Not really. You know, suicide is predominantly a white male thing. And um, actually, in Colorado, counties where there are lower numbers of Hispanics have higher incidence of suicide. So it's not really, you know, the um, immigrant population that's doing this, that's that's causing this suicide trend. It's more, you know, white men. But it's not, you know, it's not exclusively white men. What did you find ski towns are doing? to raise awareness of this or combat the problem? I think that's a big problem. I mean, I don't want to say anything. I know um, a couple of years ago, Aspen uh, hired a group of um, psychologists and psychiatrists to come in and do a report on how to address this issue and um, made recommendations. I'm not certain you know, how those recommendations have been fulfilled. Mm. I understand that you have a personal connection to this story because your mother took her own life. Mm-hmm. How did that shape your approach? So, you know, my mother took her life actually 15 years ago today, which I think is sort of a strange and elegant coincidence. And going, so I've spent a lot of time, you know, looking at this issue, examining it, trying to understand suicide and in the context of my own life and the greater context at large. And I never knew about this, this phenomenon in ski towns. And I would consider myself quite well informed on the topic. Um, And so going into it, I was surprised that this is this is happening, to be honest. Um, And I just, I guess I just have so much compassion for the people going through this, the people in these mountain towns. I was also really taken aback by the response that the article got. Um, It was one of the most well and most read articles on National Geographic's website for like a week. It got over 80 comments, which is huge for them. And, um, And so I think it showed a real need for this topic to be talked about, to bring light to it um, and that, I don't know, people shouldn't be ashamed to talk about it. I didn't think anybody would want want to read about it, that it was too sad but indeed I think people do. What were the nature of the comments? Uh, A lot of it was people sharing their experience. People saying, you know, I live in Crested Butte or I live in Park City and it's I see this, you know, every day or every year or I've had a friend that's done this Um, and just kind of reiterating that the points that we propose in the story are valid. How long has it been since your mother took her life? Fifteen years ago today. Fif- yeah. Today? Yeah. And what are what is the reverberation of that act in your life 15 years later? Oh, well, I have to say I think I'm doing my mother the greatest honor by being here today and talking about it. And I think for me... Um, the reverberation has been it was a huge wake up call it was a huge like it was like a bomb detonated in my life and um i think it really forced me ultimately after a lot of years of stumbling about to live my best life and to like do away with um bad habits and and that the best way that i could honor her was to live my best life and 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 so i'm i'm really proud of what i'm doing now and and being here and generating awareness about this topic. Thank you for being with us. Thank you.
Denver journalist Kelly McMillan's story about ski town suicide appeared in National Geographic's adventure blog. You'll find a link at cprnews.org. Coming up, LitFest is underway in Denver, a celebration of all things literary. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Now, writing as catharsis. Denver author Wendy J. Fox says writing is how she works through difficulty. Though she doesn't journal or write essays, Fox channels personal tragedy as inspiration for her fiction. She led a workshop on this at LitFest in Denver, which is underway. The two-week event is full of how-tos and panels for the literarily inclined. And uh, Wendy J. Fox, welcome to the program. Thank you. You titled your workshop Salting the Wound. That doesn't sound cathartic to me. It sounds like it's (laughs) re-injuring. Well, right. Oftentimes when we're writing about personal tragedy, we do have to push very deeply on it. That's part of the concept around catharsis and trying to go beyond catharsis. And I I do want to talk about that concept really quickly, just for people who might not know. The concept of catharsis is providing psychological relief through the open expression of emotions. So it becomes a little bit multi-layered when you're fictionalizing because the question may become how open are you actually being if you're fictionalizing? Right, and to what extent do you disguise what the reality is and to what extent is that denial, right? Exactly, and in the workshop yesterday, one of the questions that we explored is when you're fictionalizing, what are you hiding Uh. and why are you hiding it? And there's a lot of different answers to that, but it's something to know. Maybe it's not something that ever makes it onto the page, but it's something to know as you construct narrative. So does that mean that then writing good fiction starts as writing nonfiction and then adapting it? Is that is that what you're getting at? I think it's different for everyone. Um, I think it's it's challenging probably to write anything without at least leaning on some of your own personal experiences. Yeah. But I think when you're using personal experiences, whether they're tragic experiences or joyful experiences – If they're going to be fictionalized, you do have to apply the tools of fiction to them because otherwise it does beg this question of why not write an essay? Why not write a memoir? Right. So and and there are reasons for for fictionalizing. Um, Some of the themes that came out in the workshop yesterday was having control over the narrative, uh, having more empathy, empathy for yourself as a character or being able to change perspective. Right, because if you feel you made the wrong decision in real life, you can change that on the page, can't you? Absolutely. Is that why fiction is cathartic for you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Sometimes it's about changing it. I think it's also about this question of, is it the action or is it the aftermath? So sometimes people will be go through an experience that creates a lot of anger, creates a lot of grief. And so you want to write through it. You want to process it. You want to figure out some way to sit with it in your life. And so on the page, you may you may use the elements of grief or use the elements of anger, but maybe not exactly that particular action. Yeah. Your forthcoming novel is called The Pull of It. It's due out in September. And you say um, emotions you experienced while living in Turkey more than a decade ago inspired this story. Why don't we have you read an excerpt? Okay. Okay. 
I'll read just from the very beginning. Got it. The New Year's after I lost my job in the registrar's office at the university, my husband, Julian, and I got a sitter for our seven-year-old daughter, even though I always worried about holiday sitters. What kind of teenager doesn't have anywhere to be on New Year's Eve? And do I want to leave my kid with them? (laughs) Julian, ever practical, told me to stop wondering so much about other people's lives. Truthfully, this did nothing for me. What kind of person doesn't wonder about other people's lives? And do I want to be married to him? But I said, you're probably right. I was 35 years old and had already been unemployed since the summer, and it was much scarier than I had thought it would be when layoffs were being discussed. All we'd hear in the news was the dot-com bubble was bursting, bursting, pop. But I hadn't thought about how it would impact the private institution I worked for. Sure enough, though, parents started pulling their students out and opting for lower state tuition. When I packed my office, I thought of how people sometimes described the Internet as the web, and I thought of myself unwittingly caught in it, like when I'd come out of the basement with a face full of spider silk. Even if it had not been spun for me, there it was, tangled around my eyelashes. I like the idea of making literal the web. What does that scene come from? So, um... Another thing that we did talk about in the workshop is this idea that tragedy can be very broad. It doesn't have to be my entire family expired in a car ash or there was an accident or there was something very tragic. So I think that anyone who has um, worked jobs knows how devastating layoffs can be, both personally and for families. I think that anyone who has been in a relationship knows how sometimes small moments can add up to large resentments. So this in this opening section, there's uh, there are things that are personal to me more in a broad way, nothing super specific. Yeah. It was so interesting, right? The the husband says, um, stop wondering and worrying about other people's lives. And the character thinks, if you don't worry about other people's lives, are you right for me? Correct. Uh-huh. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And as Lit Fest gets underway in Denver, we're speaking with author Wendy J. Fox. She just led a workshop as part of Lit Fest about writing fiction in particular as catharsis. And you talk about um, tragedy or difficulty not having to be, um, you know, cinematic and and um, kind of d- deeply tragic to be painful and to be a motivator with this idea that I, I guess you, you just can't compare people's pain. No, you can't. And, and people have radically different experiences. And something that might feel very, very troubling to one person is not troubling to the other person. And for writers, as we're trying to translate this onto the page, I think that there is the tendency to want to go to something that's cinematic, something that's highly dramatic, mm. right? Because part of the reason that you fictionalize personal personal experiences is so that you have some control over plot. And um, one of the things that we discussed a lot in the workshop is maybe sometimes you change that action so that you can get to the root of the emotion to the root of the feeling and not be so distracted by what, quote-unquote, really happened. That is to say the events themselves might distract 
from the raw emotion that that is beneath. Mm-hmm. Or it can be too can be maybe too painful to write. How do you do this without being too contrived or overwrought? You know, because something could get really drippy. Yeah, that's that's a great question um, because you're right. The the drippy stuff belongs in people's journals, and which is a great place for them. So you think about a lot of different things. You think about a narrative position, maybe third person, instead of using I. Writing in the third person can be useful. Ah, because I've, I is a vehicle for drippiness. It it can be. <laughs> it's not. It's not always, but it's worth trying it out and saying, does this work in the third person? If I does just separate it? a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and But I think you still just have to apply the same fictional components to something that is inspired by real life as you would something that is pure fiction. Is the character believable? Is the action compelling? Does it work as a story no matter how close you feel to it? Have you had the experience of writing from something that happened to you and that maybe was painful? And then having a friend read it and just say, this is too much. Oh, when my book of short stories came out, people who know me personally said that they felt a lot of recognition of events that had happened. But most of the things in the short story book are what I would call emotionally true, if not factually true. So they might recognize the time or the emotion, but it's not uh, it's not specific to real events. Emotionally true. I love that concept. What does it mean to you? It means that if, for example, you've experienced grief or sadness or loss of some kind, you're writing about that emotion rather than the factual action. Right. This idea that the event doesn't necessarily have to make it to the page if the emotional truth Mm -hmm. does. This whole discussion, if we can pull back a little bit, makes me wonder, uh, Wendy J. Fox is as a story writer yourself do good stories come from happy places ever or do you find that the majority of them come from tension and difficulty a lot of stories come from tension and difficulty but i think the key thing there is actually tension tension there can there can be tension in a happy story the journeyness of how you get to happiness i think that in terms of writers working through things, we're more likely to work through something that's challenging rather than something that is joyful. Why? <laughs> I think because it's harder. It's harder. And, you know, there's well, but the, if it's harder, you would think you would you'd avoid it. Right. And there's this there's the classic the classic Hemingway quote that is right towards what hurts, not around it. And I think a lot of people take that to heart. Is that risky? It's, it can be very risky. It can be very risky. It can be very, very challenging. So tell us more about this forthcoming novel of yours, The Pull of It. Um, I, due out in the fall, right? Correct. September, yes. Yeah. What did you want to achieve with it? Um, the Pull of It was written over a very long period of time. I started it in 2002 when I was teaching and living in Turkey. I finished it a couple summers ago. So the main character, when I started writing it, I was much younger than Laura, and now I am older than Laura, so that changed it. What I wanted to accomplish in the book was um, 
trying to achieve, trying to capture the complexity of how we are tied to place and how even when people have things, when it looks pretty good, that there's a lot of, again, complexity in emotional life. Also, this concept of how small things can really add up and and how expectations of a certain way of living um, can can be hard for people or how something that seems as innocuous as a job loss can really reverberate through the rest of your universe. Mm. I hardly think of it as innocuous. Well, though. sure, yeah. but, it, but I, I guess I mean an everyday event, right? It's happened yeah. to everyone. It's not. It, it has a large impact, but ev- probably everyone has lost a job at one point. Thank you for being with us. This was great. Denver writer Wendy Fox. She led a workshop at LitFest in Denver, which is underway at the Lighthouse Writers Workshop through June 17th. Other uh, events include a workshop about embracing your obsessions in your writing and a panel discussion about dystopian literature. There seems to be a lot of that these days. You can read a preview excerpt from Fox's forthcoming novel, The Pull of It, at cprnews.org. And we'll return in just a moment with your feedback on Colorado Matters. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In Loud and Clear, we hear your feedback. And some of you spoke up after a recent conversation about financial exploitation of Colorado's elders. Detective Tracy Kravitz fights this type of crime for the Boulder Police Department. She suggested seniors ditch their landlines, which can be a point of entry for scammers. They get an older person on the phone, develop a rapport, and swindle them. We asked Kravitz why she thinks cell phones are safer. Cell phones nowadays are are mini computers, and there's so many more functions on a cell phone that the user has control over in terms of programming contact information for certain numbers that come up. So if we know a a certain number is calling, we could put in the name scammer. So every time that phone rings, you know, it could say scammer, so the people will know not to answer that. Detective Kravitz says it's also easier to block numbers on cell phones. And a cell phone is mobile. You can bring it to your family. You can bring it to the police. You can bring it to someone to help you. And when that call comes in, somebody else can answer it for you and kind of take over. Well, Helen Holden of Erie is in her 70s. She emailed us saying she worries a cell phone is not efficient in a medical emergency. A few years ago, she had a severe dizzy spell. Holden wrote, I could not focus on anything. I would not have been able to enter the code to get into my mobile phone, find the phone icon, and make the call. However, I was able to feel for the landline phone, and having actual buttons to push and remembering location of the numbers on the keypad, I was able to call 911. Here's how Detective Kravitz responds. You can program 911 into your phone, and so that would mean she would just have to press one button Um, she might be someone who wants to just look into Life Alert if she's that worried. Questions of skin tone and identity play out in a short film from 18-year-old Antrice Lacey of Widefield, Colorado, near Colorado Springs. She and a friend, Nakota Stacker, talked with us last week about how the terms light skin and dark skin are used in their communities and how it's affected their self-esteem as African-American women. They use the terms um, definitely on, like, social media. So they'll Mm -hmm. say, oh, I only date light-skinned guys or I only date light-skinned girls. Going into my junior year of high school, I uh, 
broadcasted on Facebook about how I had an insecurity with my skin tone and that this isn't something I should be insecure of because, as Nakota said, that is who you are. Um, you can't change your skin tone at the end of the day. A couple of those girls that are in my film were girls that reached out to me on Facebook to tell me my story helped them to see that they weren't alone with this insecurity. Well, Demetrius Boyland commented at CPRnews.org, saying the conversation was a reminder of Toni Morrison's book, God Help the Child, in which a light-skinned mother refuses to love her dark-skinned daughter. Boyland is excited to watch Lacey's film, and anyone can see the 10-minute documentary for free through a link at CPRnews.org. The other day, I interviewed Wyoming writer Craig Johnson about his latest Walt Longmire mystery, The Highwayman. Turns out his protagonist is a heartthrob. Diana McGeehan wrote on Facebook, If it's possible to fall lustfully, passionately, insanely in love with a literary character, Walt Longmire is mine. All mine. Another mystery we covered, the origins of the Denver omelette, which may have started as a sandwich. Eggs, ham, peppers, onions. Kevin Snyder of Wheat Ridge wrote, I slung hash as a teenager and the Denver is best served on wheat toast with mayo. Snyder also noticed the omelet photo on our website had mushrooms, so not in accordance with Denver tradition. If you think we have egg on our face, let us know. It's no yolk. Comment at the bottom of articles at cprnews.org, on Twitter at Colorado Matters, CPR News on Facebook, or email us News at CPR.org. Two young entrepreneurs in Fort Collins salvage antique pocket watches, and with 3D printing and some new materials, they turn last century's technology into something thoroughly modern. Kurt Nickish from WBUR has this Colorado story. When they were undergrads at Penn State, R.T. Custer and Tyler Wolf had a business idea, and they pitched it at entrepreneurship competitions. Custer remembers all the other students were coming up with smartphone apps and web products. And when I walk in and pitch my physical product, all of the investors and everybody there immediately tunes out because, you know, who's this guy and what is this physical product that's 3D printed that he's putting in front of me? That was so frustrating. But like good entrepreneurs, Custer and Wolf did not stop at frustrated. Wolf says they forged ahead at the 3D printing lab on campus. We use a stainless steel 3D printed piece that's then infiltrated with bronze. So we get this incredibly unique look of the molten bronze actually coming out of the pores of the stainless steel, which is something that's impossible to achieve using traditional manufacturing methods. That modern technology with the Bronze Age look, they use that to make cases for wristwatches. We had no idea that nobody makes a 100% American-made watch. So as we were looking for a timepiece to use in our watch... We were forced to look vintage. And they do that by salvaging pocket watches made decades ago in Waltham. We started on eBay, just buying watches. We bought probably 20 to 50 watches before we ever launched our company on Kickstarter. I sat in Artie's basement and I took apart <laughs> a watch every day and tried to put it back together to find out how it works and what makes one watch better than another. It's a tiny little engine that was built over 100 years ago. And we cleaned it, oiled it, and wound it, and it worked. We don't make things like that here anymore, and, and we need to. 
today, Wolf and Custer revived those Waltham pocket watches for daily use as wristwatches on an old farm in Fort Collins, Colorado. Outside their workshop, a sign says the name, Vordic Watch Company. Inside, ball-peen hammers and leather punchers hang next to a 3D printer and a laser engraver. And then here we have our... Employee Jimmy Looper sifts through a bag of vintage watch faces. <laughs> when we need uh, a dial, if we have another one, we can rummage through here and see if we can find anything. One dial from 1908 is crisp white enamel, Arabic numerals in sharp black with a recessed circle for the second hand. Another, from 1936, features Roman numerals under a golden patina of light metal scratches. Looper says both dials were made on the banks of the Charles. Now, the first thing I think of is, you know, what's the history of the watch? Who wore this? Who used it? You know, what has it been doing the last 50 years? Has it been sitting in a drawer or, or whatnot? And yeah, and I, I definitely wonder, you know, who, who put this together and was it just a job or was it, uh, was it their passion? I like to hope the latter. That's because when Looper flips the watch over, the metal pieces are engraved in cursive with a serial number, the words American Waltham Watch Company, and 17 jewels. The steel springs inside pivot on small pieces of ruby. Bigger plates are burnished with crosshatching or waves, patterns that Looper says were never visible while these mechanisms were tucked inside their metal cases. And I just I absolutely love that it's a, a functional piece, but they said... Well, why not make it beautiful? There's no reason not to, and, and so uh, I, I just I think that they're gorgeous. A scientifically built beauty that Vortic Watch Company wants to show off. Looper sandwiches the century-old timepiece between two pieces of Gorilla Glass, the same glass that's on the iPhone. It's very, uh, very durable, scratch-resistant glass. Pretty thick, too. With a vise, he lodges the watch and glass inside the 3D-printed steel housing and then adds thick leather straps. He winds it up to test the timing, flipping it over to watch the gears clicking away through the glass. Last year, Vortic sold 250 of these fairly big and bold wristwatches. The customers who shell out more than $2,000 each tend to be watch fanatics, tech workers with disposable income, and baby boomers. Steve Perlman bought two of the wristwatches. Wow, that's a fascinating watch. It really looks very old. Perlman says he gets that reaction from many of his customers. He's a former archaeology professor who runs an inn on Martha's Vineyard. Some people have sort of a fascination with something that is old and how it survived that long. And then to bring it to the modern world, to a time that they can associate with, I think is an interesting transference for them. So this isn't the end of the line for us. Co-founder Tyler Wolf says Vortic Watch Company plans to make 500 of these watches this year and 1,000 more next year. But eventually, he says the goal is to transition from custom to batch manufacturing, making all the hundreds of pieces for a watch here in the United States. Because we want to spread our ideas and our, our passion to more than just the people that can buy a $2,000 watch. That's a daunting business challenge in a market dominated by Swiss manufacturers. But at 23 and 25 years old, Tyler Wolf and R.T. Custer have got time. I'm Kurt Nickish. 
Finally today, the conductor of the Denver Philharmonic, Lawrence Golan, got an unusual offer recently from a company that owns concert halls in China. They asked him to do a 24-day concert tour and to bring the orchestra. He said yes. They leave June 17th and will perform in 14 cities from Beijing to Shanghai. To many cities that, uh, you know, you've never even heard the name of. But then once you get there, you find out, oh, they're actually bigger than New York. This is César Franck's Symphony in D minor, one of the pieces the Denver Phil will play in China. A 24-day international tour is a huge feat for any orchestra. It's especially big for this one because these are mostly unpaid musicians who put on just six concerts a year. The China show will feature Chinese music and pieces by American composers like John Philip Sousa and George Gershwin. Conductor Lawrence Golan says he's excited to see how his 63 musicians will grow on tour. It really allows for some musical expression and spontaneity that you don't get from a one-time concert. You know, we'll do things a little differently each time, unspoken, just, you know, spontaneously on the spot. Read more about the Phil's trip to China at cprclassical.org. Thanks today to Sean Lewis, Nathan Heffel, and Kara Schiff. This is Colorado Matters.